all that, we're going to just dive right into this because we got, as always, plenty to cover. So let's pray, and we're going to dive right in. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, King, Lord, we just lift up this time to study your word. I pray that you give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand, Lord. I pray that you would peel back your revelation for us, Lord, to take away from it the things we need to know, not just the things we want to know. And I pray this, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen? All right. So we're not going to do much from last week. We're, like I said, we're diving into Revelation 18. But as Rabbi Glenn correctly pointed out last week, uh, Revelation 17 and 18 are very much connected. Same subject matter, right? Babylon. So here at the beginning of my notes, I just have a quick note on Babylon the Great. Um, this might shock some of you, but I have the same opinion as Rabbi Glenn does on uh, Babylon, the identity of Babylon, that it's a renewed Rome or a city and nation like Rome is the most likely, uh, is most likely the identity of Babylon the Great. Um, Babylon, right, is described as a prostitute or a harlot, which is a common Old Testament image. Um, throughout the Old Testament, I, specifically Ezekiel always comes to mind for this. Um, you find the nations, particularly Israel, is, um, written about as a, a harlot or a prostitute or a woman of uh, bad reputation, right? Um, this is a common Old Testament image. It's important to know that the image, though, of a harlot or a prostitute has more going on than just immorality and idolatry. We're going to really be touching on this kind of indirectly tonight. A prostitute, right, seduces others to corrupt them and make them participate in their sinful activities. You know, you see this constantly in, in Proverbs, right? My son, do not be taken in by women who are prostitutes who try to seduce you in, right? And so on and so forth. So it's not just that this person, you know, this nation, this city, is committing sinful acts themselves, which is bad enough, right? I mean, that's terrible on its own. But the image of a prostitute is to convey to us that this woman, this city, this nation is uh, coercing others to join them in their sinful acts. So then this city or nation, this Babylon the Great, will lead the charge in seducing the entire world to continue to ally with the beast, even in the face of all the Lord's judgments. So like the Rome of old, this city will seem to be the jewel of the world, crowned with power and respect around the world. Right in the time that uh, John is writing this revelation, Rome is is huge. Right, the Roman Empire is the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. It's respected worldwide. It's feared, right, and it seems unstoppable. This is, goes on throughout history. The same thing for the Babylonian Empire, right? Um, for cities like Tyre, which we'll be talking a little bit about tonight, uh, the Persian Empire. Um, even the British Empire, right? What's the famous phrase of the British Empire? The sun does not set on the British Empire. Well, that may have been true a couple hundred years ago. It ain't true today. British Empire, you know, still very British, way less empire, right, going on there. Um, but but it seems unstoppable, right? This Babylon the Great, it's respected. Um, however, just as Rome and other empires have fallen, so too will this one in God's timing. There is a powerful lesson at the end of Revelation 17, and this is really, I think, leading into 18 and what's going on here, um, that God's sovereignty always triumphs over humanity's will and schemes, right? This is that, I always go back to, right, it's that big theme in Revelation, God's sovereignty on display. As believers, we should be mindful not to get seduced by the smaller Babylons, that exists today, right? We've talked about this as well, this idea of typology, right? There's many antichrists, you know, lowercase a, but there will be a final great antichrist, capital A, right? There's many false prophets today, but there will be the capital false prophet in this future time. And just as there will be a future Babylon capital B, so there are smaller Babylons, these sinful cities or nations that seem so powerful today. Rome, in a sense, in my understanding of Babylon, is a precursor to this final Babylon uh, that you know John has in mind through the Holy Spirit. Rome, as he's writing 
these chapters, but he's also looking to through the Holy Spirit, the visions is there is a future fulfillment, a future time going to be happening that makes this Roman Empire in the time of John look like small potatoes, right? So many rich and powerful people and companies seem to have the outward appearance of poise and power, right? This is one of the descriptors of Babylon in these chapters. Is outwardly, at first glance, she seems to be powerful, dignified, respectable. But inwardly, there's this disgusting sinfulness. And it's the same today with many companies and cities and nations and people. Um, that they eventually make that known. You know, I think of, I can, I can pull a lot of examples. We'll be talking about a couple examples tonight. But one of the ones, because it's just something in my wheelhouse I find very interesting, is I think of the leaders of cryptocurrencies, uh, specifically Sam Alito, uh, I think, yeah, uh, who just got sent to jail, and then CZ, the uh, chairman or the former CEO, I should say, of Binance, these guys were like billionaires, right? Seducing people to put their money into their basically, effectively a crypto Ponzi scheme. Uh, they finally have some justice coming to them, but really there should be a lot more coming to them. There may be more in the future, but you know, outwardly they seem very successful. They're telling you, oh, everything I'm doing is legitimate. They're respected. They're on the news. They get interviews. They get politicians hanging out with them, yada, 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 until the rug gets pulled and the truth comes out. And you realize that these guys are very petty, nasty individuals. Um, we don't want to get swept up with them, is I think part of the lesson here of uh, Babylon. I'm going to just check online here, make sure everything's going well. Uh, hello to Kina, to Millie, to Jean, to Eddie, to Rabbi Glenn and Alexandra as well, and Amy. And on YouTube, hello to you guys as well. All right, so with all that preamble out of the way, let's dive into verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So that phrase, after this I saw, shows we are now in a new section of the Revelation, right? This is a transitionary phrase. We've talked about this before. So this change is also conveyed, and hello to Paula as well. So well, you know I'm praying for you and your family, Paula. But uh, uh, the phrase, after this I saw, shows we're now in a new section. Um, notice that not only is there this phrase to convey this, but there's also a change in angels, seemingly, right? We have this new angel up here. Uh, John leaves a cup-bearing uh, angel behind for someone of a higher ranking. This angel's authority and illuminating light signals his higher station. Now, why is he illuminating the whole world? Again, it could be he's just a higher order of angel. It could be that he just left the presence of God, so he's shining with the radiance of God's glory. We're not told. We continue on, though, with his message. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. I'm using the ESV tonight, as I usually do. A haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth has grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So, this mighty angel proclaims the fall of Babylon the great, rejoicing in the Lord's righteous judgment. Now, this is a key thing going on here in these chapters, but especially in 18, and we've talked again about this, right, is the change in time perspectives going on with tenses here, right? So, from the point of view of heaven, this event has already taken place, but in the narrative of Revelation, it will not really happen until the next chapter. Right In Revelation 19, when we get there, we're going to actually really see this sort of final battle that's connected to things. But also in this chapter, we're seeing the response to the fall that will happen, both from heaven's perspective and on earth. Now, describing Babylon as a home for demons and every unclean creature shows the city's destruction. Isaiah 13 and Zephaniah 2 
reflect an Old Testament image that when a city is destroyed or abandoned, evil creatures, wild beasts move in. Right, So saying that this is a haunt or a dwelling place or a hangout right, for unclean animals and demons and spooky ghosts is the idea here that um, this city is totally and utterly destroyed. Right, It is no longer fit for any sort of human habitation. So how complete the destruction is. Now, if you're paying attention here in verse 2 and 3, you'll notice that there's sort of a set of three going on here, right? A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And it may be stylized in your Bible. That's intentional. There's lots of these like sorts of sets of three going on in Revelation 18. And so this chapter in many ways in the sections are stylized, right? Written in a certain style to convey to us things to kind of focus in on. So we should focus in on just how completely devastated the city is. That's why it's saying it's a haunt for all these things. So why does Babylon fall? Well, we've read the previous chapter, so we know a lot about what's going on with Babylon, but we're given even more and also sort of a repetition of what was going on in 17 and, and really all of Revelation. Um, so in verse 3, we are told that Babylon's fall is because of her sexual immorality, which all the other nations have participated in. So again, remember, this is an image, right? As Rabbi Glenn correctly pointed out to you last week, you, I mean, while we're using the image of a woman here to represent Babylon, right, this is not an actual physical woman, right? So the sexual immorality here should again be seen as more general, unchecked sinfulness, of which sexual immorality in these nations is definitely a part of it, but there's more going on here than just sex, right? There's this unchecked sinfulness and deep idolatry, right? Which is this other big theme in, in the Revelation, right? We have God's sovereignty and how we should submit our lives to God, whether by choice or by force it will happen, right? By God's will. But we also have this continuous stream of idolatry increasing and increasing, right, in Revelation. And so we see these things coming to a head here in this chapter. A specific type of sin is called out in verse 3, which will be repeated throughout the chapter. The sinfulness of merchants. What's going on here? Well, this is referring to those who have made a comfortable living profiting on Babylon's wealth and consumption will receive the judgment they are due. In other words, those who have profited from Babylon and Babylon's unchecked greed and immorality, they're also going to have judgment come upon them. You know, sometimes I think we focus on the main leaders of a group or nation and forget the entire network of people profiting from them. Putin may be a deeply corrupt leader, but there are so many more underneath him who profit from his dictatorship, right? I mean, you can think of this with any sort of company or, or nation or city, right? Uh, you know, Enron was more than just a CEO in Enron that was corrupt, right? When these sort of big, like, oil spills happen, it's more than just the CEO that we find out is responsible for things going on. In Nazi Germany, right, Hitler was a very bad guy who did incredibly horrible, heinous things. But there's a whole lot of people under him who are just as guilty as he is, right? And many others who profited off the taking of Jewish people's possessions and other people's as well, right? You have the architects of the Holocaust, but then you have all the many people underneath them who willingly and knowingly carried it out for their own personal profits. And so don't just think it's just the head of the serpent that gets cut off. It's every part of the body as well will be utterly and completely destroyed. Which should, you know, put some fear, but it doesn't, in the people who are connected to this Babylon organization, if you will, or this nation. Verses 4 and 5. Any questions before we move on? No? Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, 
for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So now a different voice from heaven is heard, which may be Messiah Yeshua or another angel. And this is, of course, a subject for debate. I personally lean towards it being God because the statement from this voice will really go through all of up to the verse 20 here in this passage. Additionally, we hear a voice from heaven that is the Lord in Revelation 10.4 and 14.2. So it just seems like this seems to be continuing this pattern of the voice of God from his throne. Um, and this is most likely maybe Messiah Yeshua. Again, can't be dogmatic. Again, we know it's coming from heaven. It, you know, it doesn't change the sense of what's going on here. Um, now, in the previous verses, and so this is important, right? In the previous verses, Babylon is falling. But now time has changed, tenses here, to a warning for believers not to take part in her sins. Examining the warning, we see that it's like the warnings in Jeremiah 50 and 51. In those chapters, the Jewish people are commanded to physically flee Babylon. And back in Jeremiah, we're talking about actual Babylon like the empire. But Isaiah 48, 20 through 22 shows that this can be spiritual and metaphorical um, fleeing as well. So there in Jeremiah, like it, it definitely refers to physical, but the passage in Isaiah and others show that this can also be spiritual, which is what I think is meant to be going on here, right? You know, it's not that John is telling everybody in Asia Minor to flee the Roman Empire here, okay, in the first century. But if Babylon is meant to be Rome, so that's the assumption that I'm going with here, right? That this is Rome for uh, in the first century, right? Babylon here is representing Rome, but there's also this future nation coming about later. Then for those who are in the first century, the seven churches that John is writing to, they are being commanded to distance themselves from Rome's sinfulness and idolatry which is a constant refrain in all of Scripture, all the way going to today and going to this time in Revelation. In other words, what I'm saying here is, John through the Holy Spirit is saying, stay away from the sinfulness of these empires and these people, right? In a general sense and in a very specific sense here at this future time, you know, when you see Babylon showing up, whatever it looks like, run away from it. And so, you know, we may ask the question, well, Rabbi Jerry, how do I know if this is Babylon capital B, the true Babylon being talked about here, or Babylon lowercase b, the, you know, a, a, a mini Babylon? Ultimately, it don't matter because it doesn't matter if it's the great Babylon or a smaller Babylon, you ought to be fleeing from it, right? You know, it's not enough to say, well, you know, you shouldn't follow people like Hitler. And you say to me, well, that's great, Rabbi Jerry. But you also shouldn't follow people who scam other people of their money as well. You don't choose between one of those two. You don't follow either of those types of people, right? And that's the sense of all of Scripture, is to flee from these people, right? One of the common refrains of the New Testament is to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Which is, I think, one of the hardest commandments in all of Scripture, is to be in the world, present, participating in society, commerce, these things, but not be of the world, right? This was the tension going all the way back, if we remember, in Revelation 2 and 3, right? The letters to the seven churches, this is part of their big issue is, you know, we're dealing with persecution, we're being told to do this and that, we're starting to stray a little bit, or we're being persecuted, what do we do, right? And there's all these beautiful images in there, but you can really boil down a lot of that to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, you're part of Rome in this first century, but it doesn't mean you go to the temples and offer sacrifices to emperors or to idols. At the same time, you got to eat, so you're going to have to go to a marketplace, and some of that meat may have been sacrificed to an idol. But that doesn't mean you go home and worship that false god. Right? This is part of what Paul, Rabbi Paul, is navigating with in some of his letters. So, Believers need to not worship false gods and false emperors, but keep themselves in the world by not, while not being part of it. So for those reading today the message, 
is like Revelation 17. We are warned from getting swept up in the sinfulness of this godless society. Those who participate in our sinful culture and reject the Lord will share in the punishment of the Lord's judgment. Like This is the big theme here in 17 and 18, and especially in 18. The Lord remembers the crimes of Babylon, and his justice will be coming. His justice came for Rome. It will come for these later Babylons as well. Verse 6. Any questions on that so far? Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Right? So this is still the voice of God throughout this chapter uh, speaking here, up to verse 20. The first part of this verse is a reference to Jeremiah 50, 29, which may also be a reference to Psalm 137.8. The judge of the earth promises to punish Babylon for her sins fully. Now, this is a theme throughout Scripture that people will be judged by what they have done. And I have several references here for that, right? This is another common theme, right? Those who work wicked things will have the punishment of wickedness come upon them, right? Those who do things that are right will receive their reward. Right? This is a constant theme in Scripture. Now, some scholars see the promise of a double portion of justice to be more about a complete judgment. In other words, they get kind of like, well, why would God double down on the punishment? Like, doesn't that seem excessive? So they want to kind of read this as saying, well, you know, they kind of do some Hebrew arguments here and say, well, maybe this isn't about a double portion of justice. This is more like complete justice. And you could kind of maybe make that work, but I think it's solving a problem that we as maybe modern readers or in our systems have issues with that really isn't present in the text. Um, certain sins do merit a double portion of punishment, and that is probably what is happening here as well. And we see this in Exodus 22.4, Isaiah 42, and Jeremiah 16.8 where there's this idea of double punishment and sometimes even double blessing for particularly righteous acts. Um, so I do think it's a double punishment because of how, again, remember, we're talking about the true Babylon here, capital B, right? The cup of overwhelming sinfulness and idolatry and leading so many other people astray, which is especially heinous, right? In God's word, it's one thing. If you do something terrible, it's another thing to be a leader, leading groups of people into it as well. There's a reason why false teachers in the New Testament have such a harsh penalty coming upon them. The quote here of the cup she has mixed is a reference back to Revelation 17.4, where Babylon is described as drinking from a cup overflowing with abominations. Now, a question raised by this verse is, who is paying back Babylon through the Lord? Is it angels? Is it meant to be ambiguous, or are God's people involved? Well, as always, you got people who think all these different viewpoints. But, and I, I think it is, I do think it's too hard to say for sure. But if believers, so this is an if, if believers will be present at the final battle involving Babylon, the beast, and all the nations of the world, then God's people may be used by the Lord as part of the judgment on Babylon. So this is if you see, you know, and we'll get to it when we get to it and, and parse it out, but if you see believers participating in this final battle, that's not just angels, but believers as well. Um, again, depending on how you view scripture, are believers alive at this time? Are they all dead? Are we talking about the spirits of believers, right? Resurrect, you know, the resurrection, yada, yada, different, uh, you know, amazing things. How you see this timetable. So if you're someone who leans towards the idea that believers will be present this final battle, then this verse may support that. Um, again, I, I think it's too ambiguous from here to take a side one way or the other. But if this is true, it's not about revenge. But, by, but being a tool in the righteous judgment and wrath of the Lord. And that's the big thing here, right? Is we're coming, we're coming here in Revelation 18 after all the heinous things that the beast and those allied with him have done to believers, right? You know, again, first century readers reading this, right, probably have a pretty big axe to grind against the Roman Empire. It was kind of making their lives suck, right? 
you know, Revelation 2 and 3, you know, there's martyrdom happening as we understand it today. People dying for their faith, right? So, you know, they got some axes to grind. Um, but the idea here in, in Revelation 18 especially is that it's not about vengeance for us, right? It's not about us getting our revenge. It's about God's vengeance because of his sovereign will bringing righteous judgment and his righteous wrath upon an evil, corrupt society, nation, people, right? God's wrath. So it's not about us, it's about him. Verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So another set of threes going on here. And both verses 6 and 7 here are kind of like a courtroom scene. A lot of the language here in the Greek especially has very like a judicial context, right? God's judgment is being poured out, and we're seeing like as a court case the reasons for that judgment. In these two verses, we see some of the reasons for her punishment. She has chosen to glorify herself, which is a form of idolatry, self-love, instead of glorifying God. She has also decided to live in sensual and extravagant luxury. So because of her materialistic and self-centered life, the justice of the Lord demands overflowing torment and mourning. Just as she filled her cup overflowing with sinfulness, right, with the blood of the, of the saints, so the cup of God's wrath will also be overflowing. So again, there's, a, there's an equality in punishment here. You want to fill your cup overflowing with sinfulness, with evil acts, with killing people, all sorts of terrible things? That's wonderful. You're now going to experience an overflowing cup of God's wrath. Enjoy. The rest of verse 7 here gives us a snapshot of her thinking, right? This is sort of in her mind, personified. Notice the threefold pattern being used again to describe her self-assessment. So she sees herself as a queen, not a widow, and she will never mourn. So what does this mean? It means she is proud and arrogant that her subjects, whether people or nations, will never be taken from her. She'll never be alone. She'll never be powerless like a widow would be in this society. She can be secure in her power. She's strong. She's respected. She can't be stopped. That's how she thinks about herself. That is how this nation will think about itself, this Babylon. And that's how all the enemies of the Lord at this time will think about themselves until God's justice comes. How many people today <clears throat> arrogantly presume that they are unstoppable? And I'm not talking about the billionaires of the world or the CEOs, just your average everyday person who thinks, you know, I can do whatever I want. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. You find this a lot with people who get caught up in the, <clears throat> in the court system, Right? where they think, oh, you know, I can go out and steal this thing or lie about that thing, right? I'm too clever to be caught, right? I'm too smart to be convicted by a judge or by lawyers or by cops, right? And they usually tend to be younger, not always, but especially younger people who, you know, they think that they're just perfect, that they're smarter than everybody else, until reality hits them in the face. And even then, you know, again, we say, well, how can people deny the Lord at this time? <clears throat> you know, how can people who get convicted over and over again for crimes or over and over again for doing horrible things to their family or their friends, right, where people leave them, how can they continue to see themselves as the victim or the smartest person or think that things are going to be different this time around when they do the exact same sinful thing? It's human arrogance. It's our pride. Like, that's real pride. So this is what she thinks. But as we see in verse 8, her thinking does not reflect God's reality. Verse 8, 
For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Because she is so arrogant, idolatrous, and sinful, her judgment will happen swiftly in a single day. Three plagues are described in this verse. Death, mourning, and famine, followed by a judgment in fire. A beautiful four-course meal. Notice the shift in tenses. Will come. Reflecting a future that will soon happen. These plagues and judgments reference the seals, the bowls, the trumpets and reflect how each series ends with an intense final judgment. So this is being connected, you know, whether, in my opinion, I, I see the seventh bowl, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh seal as all the same event, but if you see the seventh trumpet as the final event, either way, this is being connected to that. In a single day, all these terrible things will happen specifically to Babylon. After everything else that's been going on, too. Any questions? Brian. Yes, very much Isaiah 47 is very reminiscent. There's a lot, so on my notes, there's a lot of verses and allusions here that I left out because literally, you know, some people see this as like, they wonder if, I, I remember reading one, one commentary, like a comment of, some see this as maybe just mostly Greek-inspired as opposed to Jewish-inspired, like, from, from Greek ideas, and the amount of references and allusions here, because there's, again, this typological pattern of happening, right? This All this stuff we're seeing here to this Babylon, right, happened to original Babylon, happened to Rome, happened to all these other nations that went up against Israel, right? And even in ancient times, like, you think of Egypt, right? I mean, we talked about how the plagues um, being in the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets well, specifically, I should say more so the trumpets and the bulls, reminds you of the Egyptian plagues, right? There's this pattern throughout human history of arrogant human empires challenging God and his will and being crushed in many different horrible ways. Um, but yes, there definitely is uh, a reference there. There's a ton of different allusions I left out. Question. Well, that's it. So, I mean, so yes, verse 6 is that people is a God. It's absolutely God, right? So God is definitely the one who is leading this charge, who is bringing this judgment. The question I just brought up, because it's interesting, is, you know, what is the instrument of God's judgment? Are Is it angels being used here? Is it people? Is it something else? Or is it meant to just be ambiguous? It's definitely God. But is there anything else going along with the Lord in this time? And again, I just... You know, a, a lot of scholars will, will spend a lot of time on this. I didn't want to spend a lot of time, but I wanted to acknowledge it and basically say, you know what? We really don't know. Um, let me take a quick peek online here, make sure everything's going well. And hello, hello to Ellen on YouTube. So uh, Marianne says, John must have been very well versed in the history of Babylon and how that image fit over Rome and Roman conduct of control, authority, and government. Absolutely. Um, you know, the use of typology uh, is, is huge throughout Revelation, the idea of these types. Um, and hello to Catherine from Australia. But good questions. If you have any questions, put them online. I will do my best to get to them as we uh, continue on here. Verse 8. For this reason... but. Never mind, I did that one. I was like, I think I covered that. Verses 9 and 10, let's move on. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, whoa, whoa, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So with the destruction of Babylon, we see the beginning of three reactions from groups of people. So we're going to see here the kings. Later on, we're going to see merchants. And then we're going to see those who sail the ships, bringing goods with the merchants. How these three groups of people respond to Babylon's fall. Now in these verses, <clears throat> the kings of the earth that join her kingdom mourn her passing. 
These are the same kings as in verse 3. Each of these groups will say, Woe for Babylon out of sorrow. Excuse me, I'm coughing. This should be contrasted with the three woes accompanying the trumpets and the woe for Sidon's anger in Revelation 12. Right? We've seen woes elsewhere in the Revelation. The woes in these verses are out of sorrow for their love for Babylon. The woes elsewhere in Revelation are about the judgment of the Lord. Woe because they're about to experience God's righteous judgment. Different priorities, different types of woes. Now, these kings know they are just as guilty for their sinfulness, and while they mourn Babylon, they are not near enough or foolish enough to come to her aid. They do not want to experience the same judgment. Describing it as happening in a single hour, by the way, is not a contradiction, but is poetic to reflect the swiftness that Babylon falls. Their weeping as well as the others in this chapter, is also connected to Ezekiel 16, um, Ezekiel 27, and Isaiah 23, which describes the crying over Tyre's destruction. And Tyre was like this Babylon in many ways and experienced the judgment of the Lord. Tyre, right, in, uh, I believe, in modern-day Lebanon, if my memory uh, serves me correctly. And so there can be a lot of parallels here with this as well, with Tyre's fall. Um, again, all these empires falling in similar ways. We're meant to see patterns in this. Any questions? Verses 11 through 13. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Repetition here. Since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, Scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, mirror, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. So we can do a whole Bible study on just this list. Um, there's a lot of interesting things you can unpack from going through this list. Um, we're going to touch this on a surface level on some of these things. But any good commentary, I know Mounts goes through this, uh, Osborne's as well as Fanning's, all of them go through the list a little bit. I particularly like Osborne's analysis the most on this. Uh, but this recalls a similar list, which we find in Ezekiel 27, uh, where the merchants mourn over Babylon here as they did over Tyre. Now, this is an extensive list of different goods they traded with Babylon. And the final item on this list is slaves. Now, notice what is considered precious cargo and important in the ancient world. It is intentional that gold heads this list. Rabbi Lauren would approve of that. We find gold and silver at the top of this list because they were incredibly desired commodities, along with pearls and jewels, right? That's why they're at the top of the list. Now, it's not just about, the list is organized into like different sets here of these different articles. It's not just from most important to least important, although the first and the bottom of the list definitely are that way. The rest of it isn't necessarily styled that way, but these are different categories. But it is intentional that gold and silver and pearls, right, are at the top of this list. And it's also intentional what's at the end of the list. Slaves is at the bottom of this list. The Greek word here is not the usual term for slaves, but means bodies. I believe it's soma in the Greek. This is intentionally negative to emphasize that Rome and other sinful societies see slaves not as people, but as tools, like horses or sheep. That's why they're listed where they are in this list, along with these other animals that were used in the fields or used as tools, right? They're just, and also bodies. And there's that clarifying statement, right? So if we read it literally in Greek, it's, and also bodies, that is human souls. Why is that being emphasized? Well, John 
through the Holy Spirit is emphasizing that while Rome and the Babylons of this time in the future will see people as just tools, these slaves as just tools, in the eyes of God, and correctly understood, these are human souls. They're made in the image of God. They have precious worth. It is wrong to enslave people, is baked here in this list. Now, of course, today, hopefully we say, well, yeah, duh, Jerry. You know, it's bad to enslave people. Um, but for most of human history, that wasn't a, yeah, duh, Jerry statement. Uh, you know, slavery is alive and well today as well in many countries around the world, and even in America. You know, sex trafficking, sexual slavery, is a big deal. If you don't believe me, do a couple Google searches and educate yourself. But we also have other people who, you know, people who come in here as, like, indentured servants who get their passports taken away or used as slaves, okay? There's a lot of that stuff going on. Now, we think we're in a nice, enlightened, Western you know, democratic society, those things that go on here, they do, we just hide it better. We just don't have the slave markets in the middle of town, okay? But that's the idea here in Scripture, is that people have worth. Even if society in Babylon doesn't think so, God does. And so the Lord does not approve of slavery and those who traffic in it, right? In a sense, while these are merchants selling all sorts of different things, one of the things they also are are slave traffickers. It's a commodity. And in, the, in, you know, in our society, and you know, even a couple hundred years ago, that is how slaves are viewed. Right? It was, you know, who was it that would bring slaves over to America? It was merchants, people who would want to sell other people. Right? It's a terrible trade. But that's what it was called, right? The slave trade. So these merchants profit off of not just human misery, but they're profiting off of Babylon. Again, don't want to get lost here on just these couple words, right? Context. These are merchants trading with Babylon, getting rich off of Babylon. And they're upset and mourning that the money supply has been cut off. You know, they're not making money hand over fist anymore. Woe is them. We should feel so sorry for them. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you. So this is, again, the merchants talking about Babylon, talking about how she feels. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The need for goods and commerce is a part of human life. I should put this out there that being a merchant is not sinful. You know, one of the reasons why Jewish people were forced to be merchants, most famously, of course, in Shakespeare's play, right, The Merchant of Venice, was that merchants were viewed as, like, despicable people. It was not considered a noble profession, so it was fit for Jews and other undesirable people, right? We have that view of many different professions, and that view changes throughout time. Okay, it's not a bad thing to trade goods and services. Okay, it's not a bad thing to be somebody who purchases and sells goods. Okay, being a merchant is not sinful, but living your life for only material gain is. In this verse, we see that Babylon's soul longed for all these goods. This is what filled Babylon's heart. Her desire for stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, look at the previous list, right? She loved gold and silver and pearls and fine linens, right? She's clothed in fine linens. And she loved slaves. All these things. The merchants mourn the loss of their profits from Babylon and how they will never be able to sell goods in such great amounts. That's where their hearts are. Both Babylon and these merchants only care about money. And these merchants are upset, again, that the money's dried up. Questions before we move on? Okay. Verses 15 through 17. I think we might make it through. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Woe, woe for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, 
in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Like the kings previously, the merchants pronounced a woe with sorrow for Babylon. Their description of her echoes the one in 17.4. They mourn how swiftly all her wealth has been destroyed by the Lord's judgment. Both the kings and these merchants are still committed to sinfully turning against the Lord. But once again, stay far away so as not to experience the same judgment. Now notice, though, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 18, what do we read? That judgment's coming for Babylon, but it's also coming for who? The kings of the earth and these merchants. So they think, well, you know, we didn't get hit with the comet, right? We didn't get hit with, with the fire and the brimstone in this moment. Maybe we're going to get away with all this, scot-free, right? Take the money and run. Um, they don't think, just like Babylon, well, nothing bad's going to happen to me. They go, well, something bad happened to Babylon. But just because it happened to Babylon, and just because I'm, like, involved with Babylon, doesn't mean it's going to happen to me. Again, human arrogance. Second half of verse 17 through 19. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Woe, woe, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. So this final group of sailors cries out, in a way like describing the beast, excuse me, like describing the beast, asking what city was like this great city? Who is like the beast? What city is like this great city? The construction is very similar in the phrasing. It's intentional. This passage here mirrors Ezekiel 27.32 and 27.29, uh, describing sailors mourning tires destruction. They look at it from boats. So the kings. The merchants, the sailors, they woe for Babylon. They mourn Babylon. They're they're even more intensely um, mourning Babylon because they're putting uh, ashes on their head, right? A, A deep sign of mourning. But what's the response of God's people in heaven? We have this verse 20 here where we're going to end tonight. It's an intentional break in this narrative that seems very jarring. It's very different. Uh, quick question here. I'm seeing something with a question mark. Diana asks, can this, can that be America? It sure could be America acting like this if America is around at this time. Is America Babylon? Probably not. Can I say it definitively? No. Will we know when that time comes? Yes. Um, is, is America, are there parallels? Oh, here's a better question. Are there parallels between America today and the Babylon described here? Do we share attributes with Babylon? And the answer to that question is yes, exclamation point, exclamation points. Um, and is that a problem? Absolutely. And is that causing us problems today, right now in our society? You betcha. You know, absolutely. So, good question. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. prophets, For God has given judgment for you against her. So, intentionally breaking up this section of Revelation 18 is verse 20. We have seen in the previous sections the response of the wicked to Babylon's destruction. They mourn, they weep, and cry over how this has impacted their sinful enterprises. But the response of God's people is different. We are called to rejoice, to have joy that the Lord's judgment has finally been carried out. The punishment that was due for Babylon has been carried out, and all who love righteousness should be glad. Again, this is not about revenge, but rejoicing that the Lord has vindicated our trust in him and has delivered victory over our enemies. And that's where we'll end tonight.
and we'll pick up now with the summary and application with our final verse for tonight. Any questions before I go into some quick application, a little summary here? If you have one online, please uh, let me know. Okay? So in this sequence, we see several different moments of time. Much of Revelation 18 is about the different responses to the fall of Babylon, who arrogantly believed it would never be destroyed. Those who profited off of Babylon mourn her destruction and the loss of their wealth and power. God's people rejoice, though, in the Lord's right justice being exercised over, exercised over this wicked city. For application, well, we return again to one of the main lessons of Revelation. God is king over all. The wicked kings, merchants, captains, and others place their trust in Babylon. They assumed it was strong enough to withstand any issues and could never be destroyed. In the first century, most people would have said the same thing about Rome. We know from history that Rome was destroyed and it came quicker than anybody imagined. In an even greater way, this will happen to the new Rome, Babylon, at this time. People will be even more shocked when it happens. But the Lord's sovereign will can never be stopped. You know, I think of, I, last week I was in Chicago uh, visiting my girlfriend, Lauren. We went, uh, not last week, the weekend before, excuse me. Um, and we went to uh, the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, I think is the name of it. I'm probably butchering that science technology. Anyway, we went there because there was this Pompeii exhibit that you wanted to see. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever studied Pompeii, right, which is an ancient city connected to Greece and Rome and all that, right? But Pompeii was destroyed in a single day, right, when the, the mountain, I think it's Mount Vesuvio, I'm mispronounced, Vesuvius, thank you. What, um, uh, erupted, right? And you can see, you know, they had, they had plaster casts of this, but you can go online and they have all these preserved bodies of people crouched in terror as they were covered, suffocated from ash and fire and destruction. Incredibly terrible, incredibly sad. Uh, Pompeii was a, a powerful, amazing city uh, filled with wealth, destroyed in a single day. And very soon after, people lost um, records of where it even was until it was found many, many hundreds of years later. Um, maybe even thousands, I think. Uh, at least, at least hundreds and hundreds of years. Point is, is, you know, Pompeii didn't think that that mountain was going to erupt. They didn't think they were going to be destroyed. You know, as our Lord says in one, of, in one of his parables, right? Uh, storing up your stuff for the harvest, right? Assuming that you, you get blessed with more and more stuff building your second storehouse, not realizing your life is going to be required of you this very day, right? We don't know if we have tomorrow, but we assume we always do. And we assume that nations or countries or cities can never be destroyed, right? Rome isn't going to be destroyed. The Roman Empire isn't going to be destroyed. And we think the same thing about our country, America, you know, we're the most powerful nation on the face of this earth. How could America be destroyed? How could America not be here in Revelation? Sinfully turning against Israel. Uh, you know, we don't like to think about that part. But it's like, you know, we don't like to think of our nation not being around. Let me tell you, we're a young nation. Okay, we're a young country. We can very easily be destroyed. Okay whether externally through weather disasters or internally through strife and sinfulness. Um, you know, we're not guaranteed to be preserved in Scripture. You know, I know there's lots of books that talk about that, where, you know, if, if America just writes the course, we could be the next Israel, right, or something like that. You know, there's a lot of people who traffic in that stuff. Let me tell you, there, you can't twist Scripture to make that work, okay? God has not made unconditional promises to America. Okay, or the land of North America. Okay, his unconditional covenant is with the land of Israel. Okay, and even that is with the land. The people get exiled plenty. Plenty of terrible things happen to the, our Jewish people, happen to Israel in the Old Testament. Many times when Israel is being called what? A harlot or a prostitute or a woman of ill repute, and judgment comes upon them. If he doesn't spare Israel, why would he spare America? You know, if God doesn't tolerate the sinfulness of, of Israel in ancient times and today, 
why won't why would God tolerate our sinfulness as well? Okay, Babylon thought God's going to tolerate it that they would survive, and they learned the hard way they're not going to. Lord's will can never be stopped. So Revelation eighteen also asks us that we need to be sure who is sovereign over our lives. Do we live for ourselves and for material wealth? Or do we live for the Lord? As Messiah Yeshua taught us in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do we spend most of our energy, like the wicked in this chapter, in acquiring treasures in this life? You know, Scripture, again, does not teach us that having possessions is bad. Okay, some people, obviously, writing, especially in Christian history, you know, become monks, give up all their worldly possessions, go live in a monastery, take a vow of silence, and feel more holier than thou for, you know, 40 or 50 years of their life, okay? That's not what God's calling us to do here, okay? Material possessions in and of themselves are not sinful or evil. But we must make sure we possess them and they do not possess us, right? Do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? And for a lot of people in this society, right now, in America, in Western society, in 2023, going into 2024, it's definitely their stuff owns them. They cannot live without X, Y, and Z. You know, they're addicted to this thing or that thing. Okay? They say, oh, you know, it's cute, I'm addicted to this thing. You know, it's not cute. Okay, we might make it cute because that helps us rationalize, right? Uh, you know, it's cute that I can't, you know, not look at my phone every 30 seconds. That my attention span has been so destroyed by TikTok that, you know, I can't watch a video longer than one minute. You know, we'll make jokes about it and we'll justify it. But it ain't really that funny when it gets down to it. It can affect the quality of our lives. Okay, and that's just like one little itty-bitty example. Okay, let alone to when we let these things become unchecked because that's what's really going on here in Babylon with these people. Right? This isn't just like a little bit of love of goods. This is what happens when this is unchecked and undealt with, when it's a molehill and now has become a literal mountain of sin. Right? A stack of sins, right, God says, reaching to heaven. It's pretty terrible. So this is especially a hard message when we live in a society of rampant consumerism, which fuels our capitalist economy. Now, again, you know, you hear those words, rampant consumerism, capitalist economy. Listen, I'm not a card-carrying socialist or a communist, all right? But I also understand that any, any system of government or economy that isn't based on the Lord, Messiah, Yeshua, ruling over in our lives is going to be flawed, okay? Whether you're talking about communism, socialism, and yes, even capitalism. Consumer spending in our society is always needed to be growing and can never slow down. It's the lifeblood of our economy. But scripture tells us we are called to store where our treasures in heaven, focusing on the Lord, not satisfying manufactured desires. And so this is what makes it so hard to be in the world, but not of the world, because the world demands that you consume. Our society, our economy literally runs on consumption, right? There's a reason why we we pay so close attention to the numbers in November and December of Black Friday and how it has expanded to Black Week and there's a second Black Friday and you got your Amazon Prime Days. You got this, all these different things, right, designed to make you spend money, okay? The government wants you to spend money because that is what fuels our economy. If we all start really saving our money, the consumer spending goes down. And if consumer spending goes down, bad things happen to the way our economy is oriented, right? So everything is designed to get you to spend money in specific ways, okay? Um, and that is contrary to Scripture, which, again, isn't saying you can't spend money. It's saying that shouldn't be the main drive of your life. You should live for more than things and the desire of things. So therefore, we must ask ourselves, what would be our response to Babylon? Rejoicing in the Lord's justice or mourning all the power and wealth destroyed? And that's the real uncomfortable question, is would we mourn the destruction of Babylon 
or we rejoice in it? Do we mourn when we see wealth and things that we can't reach, you know, getting further and further away from us? Or do we rejoice when we see, you know, God's justice being merited out when, you know, corrupt people fall? You know, do we feel good or bad about that? You know, what's in your heart? Where your heart is, you know, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. What is the focus of your lives? Is it pleasing Babylon? Maybe little Babylon, lowercase b? Or is it pleasing God? Ultimately, you cannot have two masters, right? That's what Messiah Yeshua says. Either you serve Babylon and the beast and the enemy and the world and capitalism and sinfulness and all these things, or you serve God and his people and his community. Two choices. All right, when we'll therefore tonight, let's pray. Avinu Mokeno, our Father, King, Lord, thank you for revealing your word to us. I pray that each one of us would not be possessed by our things, Lord, but desire to overcome and reach those treasures in heaven that you have promised us. All those promises to those who overcome that you promise us in Revelation 2 and 3, I pray that would be the desire of our hearts as we move towards the end of Revelation that that would be where our heart is also, as we read in Hebrews 11, desiring a kingdom, a country that is different than this country we could find here on earth, your country, Lord, desiring to be part of your new Jerusalem, to be with you forever. And I pray all these things with Shem Yeshua. Amen? All righty. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you all next week. And again, next Wednesday. We are no longer having Bible studies on Thursday nights. It has now moved to Wednesday nights, 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. Thank you guys so much.